You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. Episode 2, Cain and Abel, an Oracle of Sin. Now, if you haven't listened to the first episode, which was a story of Adam and Eve called The Origin of Sin That Wasn't, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that episode before listening to this one. You can understand this episode on its own, but you're going to miss a lot if you don't listen to the first one beforehand. So let me talk a little bit about how this podcast series will continue. Last episode, you heard an explanation of the Adam and Eve story in the Bible before the layers of interpretation that we get to later and what the plain text meaning of that story is in its biblical context. This episode, we're going to be talking about the story of Cain and Abel, again in its biblical context, even though I will sometimes bring in some later interpretation when it is relevant, or when it's just too interesting to ignore. Then next episode, we will be talking about later interpretations of both these stories. The Cain and Abel story includes the first explicit mention of sin that we get to in the Hebrew Bible. Even though for some reason, and we're going to talk about that later as well, uh, for some reason, this story did not resonate particularly in the Second Temple period. It resonated later, but not in the Second Temple period. Not, not much. Then after the next episode, when we talk about how the Adam and Eve story, and again, a little bit about the Cain and Abel story, how they are interpreted in the Second Temple period and immediately afterwards. Afterwards, we're going to be going back to the biblical text, and we're going to be talking about uh, Genesis 6, Breshit Vav, verses 1 to 4, what becomes the Watcher's myth in the Second Temple period. And then we're going to be spending quite some time talking about how the Watcher's myth plays out in different Second Temple interpretations. But now let's turn to our text. Now, I will mainly be using the NJPS translation, but I'm going to be changing it liberally when it's not that close to the plain meaning of the text. And I will also be talking about certain cases where you might see a very different translation in your Bible. So let's turn to our text. And luckily enough, uh, this picks up right where we left off last time. Right after the expulsion from Eden, we have uh, the conception of Cain and Abel, or as I will call them, Cain and Hevel. So I'm starting with chapter four. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have acquired a man with the Lord. So her, the word that she's using for acquired is Kaniti, hence Cain. I have acquired a man with the Lord. Now, this wording sounds peculiar to us, but it expresses two different things. Well, first of all, we have to have the name Cain in there somehow. So we need the word Kaniti, acquired. But besides that, what is this expressing? This is expressing the first human birth. 
So how does a woman feel? She's given birth. There has been no birth before. She has made a man with God, right? She's made a person. Wow. At the same time, it's kind of hubristic. It's kind of prideful for her to say that. And that's a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Kain later. This kind of pride. And then she has another child. And she continued to give birth. She bore his brother, Hevel. And here we have no, um, we have no explanation of the name Hevel. Frankly, we who know the end of the story, don't need an explanation of the name Hevel because Hevel means a breath or vanity, something that is is gone in an instant. Uh, so if you are familiar with Kohelet, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, the word is Hevel, Hevel Havalim, vanity of vanities. So that's the name that she gives her second child. So we know he's not going to be around for long. Returning to our text, and Hevel was a sheep herder, and Cain was a worker of the land. If you remember, or if any of you have seen the, uh, the musical Oklahoma, the farmer and the cowman should be friends. So we have that kind of basic conflict here, where Hevel uh, herds sheep and Cain works the land. And it's not going to end well. In the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the soil. And Hevel also brought from among the firstborn of his sheep and from their fat. And God listened to Hevel and his offering and to Cain and his offering. He did not listen. He did not heed. And Cain was very upset and his face fell. Now in the plain meaning of the text, it's not quite clear why God listens to Hevel and not to Cain, and it's not even clear really what that means. One would assume that both of them asked for something, and only Hevel got what he wanted, and Cain did not get what he wanted. And that's how they knew their offering was accepted. In rabbinic tradition, you know your offering is accepted if the smoke goes straight up to heaven. So according to rabbinic interpretation, um, Hevel did not, Hevel saw that his smoke went straight up. He knew that his sacrifice was accepted. Cain saw that his smoke did not go straight up. His offering was not accepted. Why could this be? Well, there is a hint, even in the plain meaning of the text, and of course this becomes very prominent in, in later interpretation, that whereas it just says in terms of Cain, even though he brings an offering first, it just says, you know, he, he brought of the fruit of the earth, whereas Hevel brings the firstborn of his sheep and their fat. So it sounds like Hevel made an effort to bring the best and Cain just brought. So that, of course, becomes prominent in later interpretation. Why was Hevel listened to and Cain was not? Why was Hevel's offering accepted and Cain's offering was not? But what's important for us in this series, really, is what happens next. And what happens next is, it says, And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you distressed? And why is your face fallen? Surely if you do right, there is uplift. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But if you do not do right, sin couches at the door. Its urge is toward you, yet you can be its master. Now, because this is a 
statement about sin for the first time, an explicit statement about sin that needs a lot of unpacking, I'm going to go into depth with this statement. Why are you distressed? Why is your face fallen? That's clear enough. Surely if you do right or if you do good, se'et, there is uplift. Se'et, I actually really like that translation. It's simply something's going to be lifted up. What is going to be lifted up? In later interpretation, what is lifted up is sin. If you do right, your sin will be lifted away from you. Now, I actually tend to uh, side with the medieval commentator Ibn Ezra here. Um, he says, no, what is, what's the context? Why have your, has your face fallen? Now, your face can fall and it can also be lifted. If God lifts your face, it means that God accepts you. God shows you goodwill. So God is saying, why is your face fallen? If you do good, it will be uplifted. I'm going to accept you. I'm going to show you favor. And if you don't do good, sin couches at the door. What does the word rovitz mean? Couch here? I, I, I like to use the word crouch, but really it does mean to lie. It's a word that's usually used specifically of animals. Animals lying in the field, animals lying in their pens. So sin here has become animalistic. Like an animal, it's, it's waiting for you at the door. It's kind of lying there at the entrance. And it desires you. Its urge or its desire is to you, and you shall rule it. Now, what does this remind us of? This reminds us of Eve's curse. Do you remember the curse that Eve got? God said, you will desire your husband, you will desire a man, and he will rule over you. And in this case, it is sin that desires Cain, and therefore Cain will be able to rule it. Because if you recall what we discussed last time, the rule seems to be that if you are desired, you can rule, you can control the thing that desires you. Now, it's pretty obvious what an early interpreter would think, right? You have this really nice parallel, and it's not—it's the same words, it's the same verbal construction, it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same construction, where what is the parallel? Again, sin desires Cain, and Cain can rule it. Eve desires Adam, and Adam can rule her. Woman desires man, man can rule her. So it's not that surprising that there's this idea that grows woman equals sin, right? Woman is sin because in the last chapter, right, who desires man? Woman desires man. Who can, you know, and, and who does man rule? Woman. And here, Sin desires man, and man can rule sin. Okay, however, bringing us back to this actual text, there's no parallel made explicitly here. Here, God is just talking to Cain. There's no woman involved. There's just sin. Okay, uh, now interestingly enough, the word for sin here seems to be a feminine word, but the verb, the verbs that are used and the possessive pronouns that are used are male. Or masculine. Um, so in other words, it says couches, it's govitz, not govitzit. So it's a, it's masculine. And to you is his desire. It's desire, but his desire, not using the feminine. Uh, where we, whereas we would have actually expected 
the feminine because it's using a feminine form of the word for sin. It's using chatat and not chet. So it's an interesting note that's actually taking us a little bit away from that interpretation of the woman being sin. What is important to understand here, though, is that even though sin is being described as this animalistic being that lies in wait if Cain does not do well, in other words, it is kind of threatening, because sin desires Cain, because sin desires him, Cain can control it. Cain does not need to sin. Cain has some kind of control over sin. The question remains, what is sin? Because it's really being described as this kind of animal. What does it mean? That is really not explained here. But we have several important pieces of information. Apparently, it waits for a person who doesn't do good. And even if it waits for a person, like an animal, that person can still control it. At any rate, Cain does not listen, right? So the very next thing that happens is is not quite clear, okay? Listen to this. I'm now reading from a from the Hebrew Bible. I'm not going to translate that. And Cain said to Hevel, his brother, and it was when they were in the field. Now, if you're following along in a Christian Bible or even a study Bible, you may have read a different verse. And that verse would have said as follows. It would have said, And Cain said to Hevel, his brother, Let's go to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain said upon his brother, Hevel, and killed him. Now, we do have the Cain said upon his brother and killed him part. But what is not in the Hebrew Bible is that is that statement, let's go to the field. All it says is clearly missing something. Because it's the word isn't Cain spoke to Hevel. It's, it's Cain said to Hevel, his brother, and we don't know what he said. So why do you, if you're following along in a different Bible, why do you have the statement, let's go to the field? Because the Septuagint, which is the Greek, Greek translation of the Bible, which was the basis of the Vulgate, which was the Christian Latin translation of the Bible, which was, of course, the basis for many English Bibles, has that insertion. And I am calling it an insertion. It's, it's what's considered a secondary insertion. Why is that a secondary insertion? You say, well, maybe it dropped out. And the answer is because it makes sense for someone to put it in to make the text work more smoothly. We're missing. He says something to Hevel. Okay. One would assume that he says something that explains a little bit about what's going on. Right. He says something to him. And then they're in the field. Now, in the early, in certainly during the Second Temple period, where um, Jews were a little freer with the biblical text, and we have several bi- versions of the Bible from that time. One of them became the basis of what we call the Masoretic text, which is the text that Hebrew Bibles use today. And the other, or one of the others, became the basis of the Septuagint, the Greek Bible. And the and I'm I'm, I'm simplifying, I'm I'm oversimplifying here, but this is enough for our purposes. The basis of the um, the Greek Bible tended more towards what's called harmonization, towards smoothing problems out. So we have some missing words here. And they're clearly missing. So it makes sense for someone to say, okay, look, I, I don't have new information to add, but we can smooth this out, 
right? What did Cain say to Hevel? Well, the next thing we know, they're in the field. So Cain said to Hevel, let's go to the field. Problem solved. Now we have what he said. They're now in the field, and Cain kills Hevel. Okay? However, in the Hebrew Bible, this problem was not solved. We have the words are missing. And Cain said to Hevel, his brother, and it was when they were in the field, and Cain said upon his brother, Hevel, and killed him. I have to um, add a little bit of the interpretation that happens later because there's something missing here. What did he say? What did he say? So we have, for example, rabbinic midrash, which is a kind of interpretation that either explains words or sometimes fills in the missing pieces of the biblical text. There's a very famous there's a very famous midrash, and part of the reason why it's famous is because Rashi, the medieval commentator who frequently brings midrash to explain verses, simply says, there are a lot of, um, you know, midrashim, there's a lot of midrash explaining what he said, but really what he means is he got into a fight with him. And, and that's, what, that's what the text means. He got into a fight with him, and he does not actually bring the midrash. But what does the midrash say? So the midrash gives three explanations. It says, what were they talking about? One came to the other. Remember, these are the two sons of Adam and Eve. So they can split the entire world. So they say, let's split the whole world. One of them took all the land, and one of them took everything that was on the land. Well, once they did that, one of them says, the land that you're standing on is mine. And the other one says, yeah, well, the clothes that you're wearing are mine. So the second one says, strip. And the first one says, float. And they got into a fight, and Cain killed Hevel. Another explanation is that they were fighting over, they split the world, but then they fought about whose section the temple would stand in. And they got into a fight. Of course, it ended with a death. Hevel's death. And then finally, what were they discussing? There was a twin, a woman that was born with Hevel. They both wanted this woman. She's it. You know, they've got their mother and this woman who was born with Hevel as, a, as his twin. And Hevel said, she's my twin. I get her. And Cain said, I'm the firstborn. I get her. So they got into a fight and Hevel got killed. Nakama Leibovitz, who, who explained many medieval commentators as well as Midrash, has this great explanation that, that what is this Midrash saying with these different opinions? Namely, the opinion is that first they argued about land versus movable property. In other words, they argued about possessions. Second, that they argued over who's in whose portion the temple would be built. And the third opinion being that they argued over a woman, Hevel's twin, who would be able to marry her. So what does this mean? What is the root of violence in the world? The root is greed over property, religion, and lust. And these are the sources of violence in the world. Rashi, however, apparently did not like this midrash much because he does not bring it in his commentary. I am now leaving the world of later commentators and coming back to the plain meaning of the text. So Cain killed Hevel. And if we're just reading the plain meaning of the text, we don't know exactly why, but it seems that it's because he was upset about Hevel's sacrifice being accepted and that his wasn't, and that he didn't listen to what God said about calming down and being good. So the next thing we know, the Lord said to Cain, 
Where is your brother Hevel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, this also is supposed to actually ring a bell with us. Because in the ancient Near East, that was exactly what you were. If you were an older brother, you were, you were supposed to be responsible for the safety of your younger brother. So in other words, the first listeners to the story or the first readers of this story would say, of course you're your brother's keeper. Oh, my God. Just to give you an example, we're all familiar with the Joseph story. And when Joseph is sold, uh, his brothers come back and they, what do they do? They bring his coat soaked in blood and they show it to Jacob. They show it to Yaakov and Yaakov says, oh, surely he has been eaten by a wild animal. He's been torn apart and eaten by a wild animal. What they're doing is very similar to what the shepherd has to do in Exodus and Shemot 22.12, Exodus 22.12, where if a, a shepherd is responsible for the sheep in his care, but if a sheep is attacked by a wild animal, it's considered kind of an act of God. The shepherd wasn't supposed to risk his life. He wasn't supposed to, he wasn't supposed to risk certain death in order to save the sheep. So he brings the bloody bones, the bloody carcass, whatever's left of the sheep, to the owner of the flock. And he shows it to him. And then the owner of the flock says, oh, okay, I understand. You are not responsible for this sheep. That's what Joseph's older brothers were doing. They were saying, look at this coat. It's soaked with blood. We are free of responsibility for his death. Because everyone knows that an older brother is responsible for the younger brother. So we're kind of supposed to know that too. When Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's guard? We're supposed to say, of course you are, you immoral jerk. But he's essentially ignorant of this basic rule of ethics. So then God says to him, he says, what have you done? The sound of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The blood is soaked into the ground and the blood is crying out to God from this tremendous injustice. Therefore, you shall be cursed from the ground or of the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Here we have a punishment that fits the crime. Because you forced the ground to soak up your brother's blood, you will, know, you will now be exiled from the ground. How can that happen? It says, for if you work the soil, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall become a ceaseless wanderer on earth. So how will Cain be exiled from the land, from the ground that had to soak up his brother's blood? Remember that he was a farmer. He can no longer be a farmer. No, not only can he no longer be a farmer, he can't stay in one place because he can't be a farmer. He's going to have to wander around. Now we're coming to another important statement when we think about sin. And part of the reason it's an important statement is because of how it's interpreted later. Not in the Second Temple period, unfortunately, but later than that. Cain said to the Lord, my sin is too great to bear. Since you have banished me this day from the soil and I must avoid your presence and become a restless wanderer on earth, anyone who meets me may kill me. 
Now, what is the plain meaning of this text? First, I will say that some of the early, some very early interpretations say, what does it mean my sin is too great to bear? They say the in, in, um, in the Talmud and other rabbinic interpretations says, this is Cain repenting. This is him doing teshuvah. He is repenting now. And because he's saying my sin is too great to bear, he finally realizes the weight of his sin. The reason that we have interpretation that says he's doing repentance because literally it means my sin is too great to bear. Avoni, my sin is too great to bear. What does not that mean? My sin is too great to bear. Normally we would think, certainly the way we would think of sin later on, that my sin, I, I can't stand the thought of my sin anymore. I am repenting of my sin. I can't walk around with this sin on me. However, Cain himself explains what he means. He says, you have exiled me. So what Cain is saying is, you did not punish me with death. You punished me with exile. You exiled me from, from the face of the earth, and I have to hide from your face. And apparently what that means is that God's not really going to protect him. God's not going to watch over him. And I'm going to be wandering the earth with no one at my, at my side really to protect me either or no one who can avenge my death. Anyone who meets me can kill me with impunity. In other words, the punishment is exile, but what it's actually going to be is death. I can't bear this punishment because I'm going to be killed. And what is the answer? So the Lord said to him, therefore, if anyone kills Cain, now again, um, in the Hebrew text, it's therefore, lachen, but in the, the Greek text translates, lo ken, not so. So if you see in your Bibles, not so, that's again, because the Greek text is translating, not lachen, but lo ken, not so. Okay, but either way, the base meaning is going to be the same. God says, therefore, anyone who kills Cain, sevenfold vengeance shall be taken on him. And, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who met him should kill him. Cain left the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The question is, how can he settle anywhere? We'll talk about that a little bit later. So what, what happens here? In fact, and we're used to the idea that the mark of Cain is a terrible thing. The mark of Cain in the verse is supposed to protect Cain. He has a mark, so when people see it, they say, oh, that's Cain. And God promised sevenfold vengeance on anyone who kills Cain. So I'm not going to kill him. That way, Cain's punishment stays the way it is. It's a punishment of exile and not death. Now, some of you might wonder, well, why isn't the punishment death? Later on in the Bible, punishment for killing on purpose is death. Yes, you have to prove it, but in theory, the punishment for killing intentionally is death. So why isn't Cain killed? And the answer would seem to be, if we're, if we're simply following the way the biblical story is constructed, uh, the punishment of death for killing a person does not happen until after the flood. We're going to, get, we're going to read that later on, but it's after the flood that this rule is set that anyone, anyone who kills a person uh, will pay with his life. That, that law is not there yet. So right now, his punishment is that he's just going to be wandering around and he's and because he made the ground soak up his brother's blood. Now, what's interesting, this has less to do with sin and more just to do with Cain, but let's keep reading for a little bit. 
So Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Hanoch, Enoch. This isn't the famous Enoch of later, okay? It's a different Enoch. Okay, so don't get them confused. And he then founded a city and named the city after his son Enoch. Why did Cain start a city? Because he can't work the land. If you're not a farmer, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to have to be in a city. And what's interesting is that then his descendants do things that don't have to do with working the land, right? He has um, um, Yaval, who has actually, who actually, um, he was the ancestor of those who dwell in tents and amidst herds. And uh, Yuval, he was the ancestor of all who play the lyre and the pipe, musicians. And Tzila, she bore Tuvalkayan, who forged all implements of copper and iron. None of them worked the land, right? You, they are, they're all finding jobs that don't have to do with working the land because Kayan is no longer a farmer. That's just an interesting um, aside. Uh, it's interesting in terms of the way it's presenting. Once someone is exiled from the land, what can he possibly Okay, so what have we seen here? We have seen an actual explicit statement about sin that is said to come from God himself. God has made a statement about sin. Now, what's interesting is that this statement about sin does not get picked up in Second Temple literature. Now, whenever, when I say Second Temple literature, we have to remember that what we have of Second Temple literature is only a fraction of what there was. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls because they were lucky enough to survive in a fairly arid climate. They were very well, some of the scrolls were very well protected. There were surely many, many, many uh, texts that we do not have. Then we have the books of the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha, but we're missing books. So it could be that there were books that didn't stop talking about this statement to Cain. However, while this statement to Cain becomes a proof text in rabbinic literature that explains sin and later on repentance, right, where God says, um, if, you do, if you do good, then your sin will be lifted from you, you'll be forgiven, and interprets the, um, and this is true of the Aramaic Targum as well, that sin is automatically interpreted in that statement as the evil inclination that you can you can control your evil inclination and you just you have to repent and then you will be forgiven of your sin and this is considered a major statement about sin in rabbinic literature it's not picked up for example in the dead sea scrolls one possible reason that it's not picked up in the dead sea scrolls is that the people of qumran considered themselves righteous and a statement made to a sinner is not particularly relevant to them. They did not see, as opposed to um, rabbinic literature, which frequently portrays Cain as repentant. When he says, my sin is too great to bear, they say his sin was too great to bear. He repented, right? And therefore we can learn about repentance from him. And because he repented, God mitigated his punishment a little. Whereas at Qumran, they had no reason to see Cain as a penitent. Uh, he is a murderer. So why learn from him about sin? Now that's that's my that's an explanation that I have. Uh, 
it has a very small basis because, and I'll, I'll bring the, the actual text next week, There's there are one or two places where it uses a similar construction where um, uh, sin's desire is to you, but it, it, it sin's desire is to X, and the, the X is a sinner, is a bad guy. Uh, so there are two places where there's where you can find that construction in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and both times they're using it for wicked people. In other words, sin's desire is to wicked people. And so it seems like they read this uh, verse to be talking about how sin works with wicked people. And hey, if you're righteous, what do you care how sin works with wicked people? I mean, you might care a little bit because wicked people are annoying and maybe um, possibly dangerous, but in general, what you care about is your sin. How do you fight your desire to sin? So we're going to talk next week about more about how the Adam and Eve story, how the Adam and Chava story is interpreted. We find a bit of a hint of it in Ben Sira, and then we find it very prominently in a couple of books that are written right after the destruction of the Second Temple, and we're going to discuss those texts and why this would become such a prominent idea of sin after the destruction, when during the Second Temple period, it is almost ignored. So we're going to be talking about that next week. Until then, thanks for listening, and please feel free to comment on my blog at understandingsin.com. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.